0: It's a pleasure to be here on the campus of Butler University for this event, Capitalism, Government, and the Good Society, sponsored by Butler University and Liberty Fund. My name is Russ Roberts. I'm a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and host of the weekly podcast, Econ Talk, which is part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, which is sponsored by Liberty Fund. I want to begin our program by introducing Chuck Williams, Dean of the College of Business here at Butler University, and Chris Talley. President of Liberty Fund. Please welcome him.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Chuck Williams, Dean of Butler University's College of Business. and It is indeed my pleasure to welcome you to Butler University's Clues Hall for a panel discussion of capitalism, government, and the good society. Today our esteemed panel of leading thinkers will address and debate the role capitalism plays in the good society, whether policy should be more bottom-up, should be top-down, and whether the sphere of government activity should be larger or smaller. To anyone doubting the importance of these questions, I direct you to the pages of the world's leading newspapers and magazines, which over the last few days have furiously debated the legacy of British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who passed away earlier this week. Supporters praise Mrs. Thatcher, the Iron Lady, for saving Britain from economic ruin by taming labor unions, privatizing nationalized industries, strongly reducing taxes on income and capital, and shrinking inflation, which ran as high as 27%. In other words, they favor the role of capitalism in the good society. Critics condemn Mrs. Thatcher as confrontational, dogmatic, and abrasive for policies that threw people out of work, that harmed the poor, that favored the rich, that divided the nation. In other words, they support the role of larger government in the good society. At Butler's College of Business, our mission is experiential education, or what we call real life, real business. And one way in which we fulfill that mission is through extensive partnerships with the business and nonprofit communities. Today's event is the result of one such partnership with Liberty Fund. And it's my honor to introduce Chris Talley, President and CEO of Liberty Fund, please join me in thanking him and Liberty Fund for their support and sponsorship of today's event.
2: Thank you, Professor Williams. To um, take just a brief moment to explain a little bit about what Liberty Fund, kind of an organization, Liberty Fund is, and join in uh, in the warm welcome for uh, this evening's program. Liberty Fund is the legacy of an Indianapolis businessman, an Indianapolis-based lawyer, by the name of Pierre Goodrich. He was a very successful businessman, practiced law for a few years. But more than that, he was a very curious intellectual, spent his life striving to understand what it is in man's nature that makes him want to be free. Mr. Goodrich founded Liberty Fund in 1960, resulting from a long process of self-education, driven by that curiosity, along with in-depth conversations with family, friends, and business associates. He hoped that through educational activity, liberty might be restored and be preserved. Mr. Goodrich believed that liberty in all of its dimensions, religious, economic, political, and intellectual, offers the greatest chance to release the fullest measure of the creative potential of the individual, and therefore of society. Liberty Fund and the Peer and Eda Goodrich Foundation are delighted to have the opportunity to join with Butler University and in working with Professor Williams to provide this this evening's educational program discussing the commanding heights of economic activity. Again, I join with Dean Williams in welcoming all of you to this program and the ensuing presentations and conversation. Thank you all for coming out. Professor Roberts.
0: We're here to talk about capitalism, government, and the good society. And my view of capitalism has always been that under capitalism, man oppresses man. But under socialism, it's the other way around. It's not my line. Um, I'm told it came from Mad Magazine. And to be honest, it's not my view, but it does capture the reality that all political and economic systems are imperfect. The ideal mix between free markets and government intervention was the central political and economic issue of the 20th century, and it gives every indication of being the central question of the 21st century. We're still arguing about the appropriate role for government in stabilizing the business cycle, the appropriate levels of government intervention in health care, how we should regulate the financial sector, the role of government in the distribution of income, and plenty more. The big questions really haven't changed very much. What role does capitalism play in creating the good society? What's the appropriate role for government? Should economic activity emerge voluntarily from the bottom up, or should it be steered and imposed from the top down? What changes in the inter- interaction between The marketplace and government should be put in place in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. Should government sphere be larger or smaller? Is market failure or government failure the right starting point for tackling these questions? What are the right rules of the game, the right policies that let human creativity and self-expression flourish? We have a remarkable group of speakers here today, each with their own philosophical and policy perspectives, to help us think about these issues. Each speaker is going to talk for about 10 to 15 minutes, and that will be followed by an informal, hour-long conversation that I'll moderate. So let's get started. Our first speaker is Michael Munger. Mike is Professor of Political Science at Duke University, where he directs the Philosophy, Politics, and Economics program. Trained as an economist, Mike is the author of numerous journal articles at The Interface Between Economics and Politics as well as the author of Analyzing Policy, Choices, Conflicts, and Prices. He blogs at the Uvoluntary Exchange and at Kids Prefer Cheese. He leads all guests in appearances on Econ Talk with 22. Our last conversation was on John Locke and Hurricane Sandy. And he's also the best-living economist to appear in the Keynes-Hayek rap videos. Please welcome Mike Munger.
3: Well, thanks very much. How are y'all doing? Um, the other panelists really are very distinguished. As they said, I'm actually just the eye candy. And the only person who actually laughs at that joke is my wife. Well, those, those who favor... I can wait. <laughs> those who favor liberty and free enterprise are, actually, are often accused of being idealistic and naive. And I think exactly the opposite is true, there are some real problems of information, collective incentives, and externalities, but if we're realistic about the alternatives, which are equally bad, and in many ways worse, I think we can have a more useful discussion than the kind of dichotomy we usually get. We need more government, we need more markets. The truth is a little bit more complicated than that. Now, I'm a professor at Duke, as Russ told you. In North Carolina at the State Fair, we have what, in effect, are beauty contests for pigs. So you might imagine, in one of the categories at the state fair, there's a big, pretty pig contest. And there aren't many entrants because there's big pigs and there's pretty pigs. But there's not many big, pretty pigs. So there's just two. We have the two entrants. First one comes out and the judge goes, Oh, God, that's an ugly pig! Let's give the prize to the second one. Well, He hasn't seen the second pig. Now, it's true that the first pig is ugly. But why would you have a decision based on the fact that there's problems with one system and the other one must be better? But that's precisely what people who want to reject market solutions in some ways are advocating. So the world is imperfect. Our knowledge is limited. That particular pig of market solutions is in many ways pretty ugly. The world is hard. Problem is that advocates of state intervention often want to award the prize to the invisible pig, the state. But when you actually take a look under bright lights, government failures are just as ugly, just as prevalent, and in some ways harder to control than market failures. Now, the kind of research that I do is called public choice. I'm interested in the consequences of policies are the results of different combinations of rules and incentives. And I've reached the conclusion that limiting the role of government, not eliminating, but limiting the role of government in the lives of citizens, in both markets and in society, has the best consequences for society and for human flourishing. So I want to make two points in this regard. First, society and the state are different things. In fact, the state can sometimes crowd out society. But society is not the market either. It's something else. And then second, the real question is not between more regulation and less regulation. The real question should be what I'm going to call the right kind of nothing. Well, if I say that society and the state are different things and society and the market are also different things, Government's a political, collective organization that uses coercion. Markets are a set of shared institutions that reduce the transactions cost of impersonal exchange. Society is everything else. Society is all the complicated relationships that you have with people around you that are neither coercive nor based on price and exchange. When you think about your lives, an awful lot of what you do is in that third category. Society is a really big pig, and in some ways it's prettier than either the state pig or the market pig. So if all we did is vote, if all we did was to discharge our obligations by going to the grocery store or pulling the lever in the voting booth or buying a car, we would have a society that, as Alexis de Tocqueville said, would be enfeebled if we rely exclusively on the state to carry out our moral obligations or if we rely exclusively on the market to obtain the things that we want in our lives, society is enfeebled. Let me give an example. John Stuart Mill, in his 1848 book uh, Principles of Political Economy, said that no one would build lighthouses from motives of personal interest because they wouldn't collect the fees that were necessary to cover costs. So Mill's conclusion was, it's the proper office of government to build and maintain lighthouses, since it is impossible that the ships at seas which are benefited should be made to pay a toll. So the conclusion was, markets are a pretty ugly pig, let's just give the prize to the second, which is the state. But the fact is, as early as 1820, in England, which was the home of John Stuart Mill, More than three-quarters of all lighthouses had been built and at that time were operated, the very time that he said this, were being operated by private individuals. Now, how can that be? How can it be that be, that, that lighthouses could be provided? How could it be that lighthouses, which were supposed to be public, could be provided privately? Well, there were sailor societies that had sprung up as part of society not truly market nor truly state, that provided insurance, pensions, ways to provide for widows whose husbands had been killed at sea. And a group of people got together and formed a voluntary private organization. So it's true that government officials back a lot of the enforcements of those contracts. But how exactly did it work with lighthouses? Well, if you put in to a port the proprietors of the port, the people who operated the the stores, would charge something extra, and then that money would go to the private lighthouse. So lighthouses being provided privately by these societies didn't require state action. Now, when I tell people this, sometimes they say, well, but that sounds like the government was acting. In a way it is. If you go into the Circle K and buy a Coke and try to steal it, the government enforces those contracts. So there's some mix, there's some proper mix of private voluntary action in groups and enforcement by the state. What I'm objecting to is the automatic awarding of the prize to the the pig we haven't even seen, which is the state must provide the lighthouses. That's not true. There are many ways that, that creative individuals can come up with voluntary organizations to provide those services. So the lighthouses of coastal England in 1840 weren't pure market entities, but a kind of hybrid. The point is, there's no hope if we stick to these binaries. If we say, more markets, more government, we have no hope of solving the problem. We have to do it on a case-by-case basis. Well, second, the right kind of nothing. I hope we can get away from the kind of dichotomy that I've talked about And the objection that I often hear, I'm a a kind of libertarian economist in terms of my own politics, people say, well, you just want the government to do nothing. Well, that's not right. What I want is for the government to do the right kind of nothing. And what would I mean by the right kind of nothing? In 2009, I taught for a semester in Germany, in Friedrich Alexander University in Erlangen, Germany, And I don't speak any German, so at least twice a day I would end up saying, look, I'm sorry, I don't speak any German, and in some way I'd embarrass myself and something awful would happen, and I would go home and hide in the bathtub. But the problem was I would sometimes get hooked on what appeared to be cultural cognates, and I thought I knew how a grocery store worked. So I'd go to the grocery store, and in the U.S., if you're at a grocery store and you see an elderly woman pushing the shopping cart back towards the store, you say, I'll take that for you, ma'am you take the shopping cart in, she doesn't have to walk all the way in, and you get the shopping cart. So I tried that. I'm in a very large Kaufland uh, underground parking lot at a, at, a, at a grocery store, and I see this elderly woman, kind of about five feet tall in heels, of Uber Oma, a grandmother, walking along pushing a shopping cart. And so I think, okay, I know what to do, and I pantomime to her, I'll take that. And her reaction surprised me, She dodged hard to the right. I had on more sensible shoes and I was younger. And so I dodged that way too and I was gonna intercept her and she dodged pretty hard to the left. But I had the angle and I grabbed the shopping cart. It's surprising how loud an old lady's screams are in an enclosed area like that. (laughs) Because she started screaming. And then I saw a policeman running. In Germany, you don't usually see policemen running. They're very placid individuals. If they want to talk to you, they go... He was running and looking at me, and I thought, this is bad. And I was practicing my speech. I don't speak German. I don't speak German. He gets to me and starts yelling, and I said, I don't speak German. And he says, in perfect English, fortunately, what are you doing? Now, many of you know, and usually people from Germany or Europe at this point are cringing, because they know that in most of Europe, in order to put the shopping cart back, you re-chain it and you get back a euro. So there's a deposit. So I was trying to steal a euro from an old lady. I didn't think that I was, but in the policeman's eyes I was, and in his defense, I was. It didn't just look that way, that's what was going on. So he demanded ID, and I wasn't carrying my passport, but I pulled out my wallet and he saw my Duke ID, and he said, oh, my my nephew went to the executive MBA program at Duke, and I thought, thank God. By this time, I could see the corners of his mouth starting to pull up, and I said, look, I've never seen a shopping cart. I had no idea. I'm, I'm sorry. And, okay, this was going to be fine. But then, now, he was smiling. And he said, without turning around, she's still looking, isn't she? And I looked, and she was peering out from behind a pillar, ready to see justice done. And so he said, Okay. And he starts shouting, I'm not going to shout loud because I have a microphone on, and poking me hard in the chest. You have to understand, I don't think she speaks English. We're done here today. (laughs) That, I submit, is the right kind of nothing. Now, you can understand that someone on the left might say, well, you libertarians, you just want the cops to do nothing, as if they were going to sit in the car and smoke cigarettes and say, oh, another grandma's getting robbed. Where do you want to have lunch? (laughs) That's the wrong kind of nothing. If that's what you mean by deregulation, I don't want that either. But also, there was something he could have done. He could have said, this guy is trying to steal a euro from an old lady, because I was. In his defense, I was. He could have arrested me. Probably the charges would have been dropped. But as it was, the old lady was happy. Yes, I went home and hid in the bathtub, I admit. That that part was bad. But his choice to do a particular kind of nothing, I thought, was an illustration of what I would hope we could think of the proper role of government. Proper role of government is to serve as a referee. The proper role of government is to participate to the extent necessary to allow people to reach the full realization of their hopes, their dreams. Now, as I said, the the, the two points, and to summarize, the two points that I wanted to make, uh, taken together, I think, are more a program for conciliation. I've actually become convinced myself that a lot of the more extreme forms of deregulation are the wrong kind of nothing. So I hope we can talk more here today about the right kind of nothing. Thank you for listening.
0: Our next speaker is Robert Skidelsky. He is an emeritus professor of political economy at Warwick University His three-volume biography of John Maynard Keynes won five prizes, and a single volume, Abridgment, appeared in 2002. A revised edition of his book on the current crisis, Keynes, The Return of the Master, was published in September of 2010. He was made a member of the House of Lords in 1991 and was elected a Fellow of the British Academy in 1994. His most recent book, How Much is Enough?, the Love of Money and the Case for the Good Life, co-written with his son Edward, was the subject of an EconTalk episode in October of 2012. Please welcome Robert Skidelsky.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm not going to talk about Margaret Thatcher Though I, uh, I will answer and make any comments you want on her, on the Iron Lady, um, afterwards certainly um, we've been uh, overwhelmed uh, by news of her, by, by her achievements and also of course um, quite a few criticisms of her um, divisiveness so i 'd be very happy to talk to that, but rather i 'm um, going to talk about the conditions of liberty, which seems a good topic of conversation for a, a liberty fund event, owing to the uh, hazards of the weather, um, I find myself uh, the sole representative of common sense this <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this afternoon. Um, So the question really is, um, what uh, policies and structures are best suited to maintain the system of liberty? And I want to consider that question through the prism of the two great rivals of 20th century economics, John Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek. Um, They were the colossi that bestrode the world of economics, curiously enough. Um, Although they were near contemporaries, they hardly ever engaged. They were near contemporaries, they lived in the same country, but they only had a couple of engagements over a long life. The first was in 1931 when they reviewed each other's books. Well, like most professors, they reviewed each other's books badly. Hayek complained that Keynes's treatise on money lacked any principle of equilibrium. And Keynes was a bit more ac- acerbic in his review of Hayek's prices and production. He called it an example of how starting with a mistake, a remorseless logician can go mad. Um, Hayek never reviewed Keynes' big book which was his general theory of employment, interests, and money. He said that by the time he had finished the review, Keynes would have changed his mind, so it wasn't worth reviewing it in any case. But I do think that was a cop-out. He didn't know how to review it. However, I now come to their second and most fruitful encounter, which was in 1944. And in 1944, Hayek published his Road to Serfdom, his famous critique of central planning. He attacked the idea of democratic central planning because he said there would never be enough voluntary consent in a democracy for the goals of a central plan. Therefore, democratic central planning was was an oxymoron. Partial planning, by which he meant a mixture of planning and markets, he also also thought wouldn't work because, I quote, um, any attempt at such partial planning involved a progressive suppression of that economic freedom without which personal political freedom has never existed in the past. And Fascism and communism, the two big rival ideologies in 1944, um, um, were totalitarian um, culminations of what had started as democratic planning. That was his thesis. Um, Western democracies were fighting fascism without realizing that they were on the same slippery slope to serfdom. The originality of Hayek's book, of course, was this argument that what he called serfdom need not be brought about by evil men like Hitler and Stalin, uh, but by the actions of good men. The road to serfdom was paved with good intentions and was covered at a creep rather than at a gallop. Well, Keynes read this book. He was on the high seas, traveling to the United States uh, on the third of his uh, wartime missions, treasury missions, um, uh, to to, to America. And he wrote to Hayek a letter dated 28th of June, 1944, which perhaps was rather surprising in view of their huge differences on economics. Keynes congratulated Hayek on having written a grand book Morally and philosophically, I find myself in agreement with virtually the whole of it. And not only in agreement, but in deeply moved agreement. But. um, There was a but. In fact, there were three buts. And I just want to go through the buts, because I think they're very, very opposite to what we're thinking about this evening. First, you admit... Keynes wrote, that it is a question of knowing where to draw the line between the state and the market. You agree that the line has to be drawn somewhere, this is Keynes, but you give us no guidance whatever as to where to draw it. As soon as you admit that the extreme is not possible, you are on your own argument done for since you're trying to persuade us that so soon as one moves an inch in the planning direction, you are necessarily launched on the slippery path which will lead you in due course over the precipice. So that was his first but. Hayek doesn't give us any guidance as to where to draw the line between the markets and the state. And that's a good criticism. It's a cogent criticism. Libertarians have always regretted Hayek's concessions. In in particular, the concession he made that you had to have a limited welfare state. In fact, some of them have detected in Hayek a dangerous tendency towards socialism. The libertarian writer Ayn Rand denounced Hayek as a compromiser. And another famous uh, uh, libertarian philosopher argues that Hayek leaves the state's role ad-hoc, open-ended, and indeterminate. Now, Hayek did try to draw the line in a number of ways. For example, he uh, tried to distinguish between general rules, which he thought were admissible, and um, rules designed to benefit particular groups which he thought were wrong. But this doesn't do the work in defence of liberty he quite um, wants it to, because general rules like conscription, for example, can be highly coercive. I mean, Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia were conscripted societies, but everyone was conscripted. They weren't, those rules weren't aimed at any particular groups. And Hayek also argues that a social safety net is OK, provided its aim isn't re- redistributive. But of course, it's bound to be redistributed, since in practice, a social safety net involves a transfer from wealthy who don't need a social safety net to the poor who do. It is more accurately called forced charity. Well that was the first of Keynes's criticisms. Second, Keynes argued that an enlarged role for government was needed to prevent, I quote, disillusion with the results of your philosophy. This was a sound conservative even Whiggish position. Um, because what Keynes was arguing was that rejection of government policies to prevent slumps, for example, or to overcome extreme poverty would likely produce a flight from liberty. In other words, he was arguing for government intervention as an insurance policy because if you neglect that insurance, you're likely to get far worse. And this had just happened in in, in, the interwar years in Germany. There was a flight Um, from liberty. And Keynes said, you need precautionary measures. You need government to intervene to prevent those situations getting out of hand, which produce political extremism. Um, And there were other criticisms uh, Keynes could have made. On the other hand, Let me not leave the argument too strongly weighted in favor of Keynes at this point. Hayek was right to point out, though he only did so after Keynes' death, that by destroying belief in the balanced budget rule, Keynes had opened the door to an unrestrained expansion of government spending. I mean, that, I think, is is how you balance that particular argument. So this brings me to Keynes' final point, his last point. After emphasising the need for planning, Keynes went on, but the planning should take place in a community in which as many people as possible, both leaders and followers, share your own moral position. Remember, he's writing to Hayek. Moderate planning will be safe if those carrying it out are rightly oriented in their own minds and hearts to your moral position. Dangerous acts can be done safely in a community which thinks and feels rightly which would be the road to hell if they were executed by anyone those who think and feel wrongly. So that's Keynes's defense of dangerous acts. In, 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 in communities with, with democratic traditions they don't lead to serfdom. In short, moderate planning was consistent with the preservation of liberty. And I think Keynes's view here was echoed by many of the American reviewers of Hayek's Road to Serfdom when it afe- appeared. For example, Professor T.V. Smith of Chicago University noted that preparation for, for an electrocution and preparation for an electrocardiograph were the same up to a point. What the outcome would be in either case depended on the traditions of the particular society. And Smith wrote, no country has yet wittingly or unwittingly slipped into serfdom whose presuppositions are democratic, whose customs, hopes and habits uh, are full of sympathy for men and replete with respect for laws. So basically it depends on the society whether these acts, whether big government leads to serfdom or it doesn't. However, Hayek has a good comeback on this, though he obviously he didn't, he didn't reply to Keynes's letter, by the way. Um, Keynes's argument was essentially static. What it ignored was the consideration this is Keynes that right feelings and democratic customs can be depleted and eroded by continuous government intervention. Their, their continuation is not independent of the acts being done. A society in which Keynes's dangerous acts are frequent will lose its understanding of why they are dangerous. That is, its sense of what it is to be free. And this has happened to some extent. Political liberty is, remains. We're free to vote and to speak as we choose, at least on occasions like this, provided we're polite. But we now accept many more curbs on our personal liberty Um, than we did in Keynes's day or Hayek's day. In the name of all kinds of desirable things, to be sure, like health and safety and security, all those sort of things, we accept restrictions on our liberty, which we never would have. And we don't associate them with, with curbs on our freedom, because we have lost our sense of what that kind of freedom is. The war on terrorism offers leaders opportunities, unrivaled opportunities, for repressive legislation, surveillance, and preemptive justice, which comes straight out of George, George Orwell's great dystopia, 1984. But most of us are completely unaware of how far down that slippery slope we have already slipped. The more that we do not escape, a more statism of this kind may perhaps be the result of Hayek's salutary warning. Now, this is the skeleton of the great debate which should have been but never was. It never was because Keynes died less than two years after the road to serfdom appeared and therefore never engaged properly with Hayek on this very important field of political economy. The question, of course, is, is a Keynesian state more or less likely to preserve political and individual liberty, than a Hayekian state. And we'll talk, maybe discuss this perhaps more in our our conversation, what I think the essential functions of a state are in the modern age. I mean economic stabilization, provision of public goods, and I would argue redistribution of wealth and income. But my own view is that a state which does what Keynes wanted a state to do would be less vulnerable to political extremism and political authoritarianism than a state which followed Hayek's road. And in practice, underneath all the rhetoric we hear, post-war Western states have been more Keynesian than Hayekian, and that is true of the United States too. Um, and remarkably stable, I would argue, as a consequence in their democracy. Let me put it this way, in conclusion. An economic system which tolerates periodic crashes in the name of freedom from financial regulation, which tolerates cuts in public spending in face of rising unemployment, which tolerates rising inequality in the name of sanctity of, private co- uh, sanctity of contract, is more likely to suffer creeping authoritarianism by way of political reaction to those things than a state pursuing the middle way commended by Keynes, which Hayek saw as the slippery road to serfdom. Thank you.
0: Our next speaker is Richard Epstein. He is the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at New York University School of Law and the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. His latest book is Design for Liberty, Private Property, Public Administration, and the Rule of Law. His regular legal column, The Libertarian, can be found at hoover.org. He's been a guest on EconTalk seven times, and he he will be appearing for the eighth time soon to discuss constitutionalism, Please welcome Richard Epstein. On this particular
5: occasion, what I want to stress is that I actually start out life as a professional lawyer, and what lawyers do is something in many ways quite different from what economists do and political theorists do. What they do is they basically spend a lot of their time in the engine room trying to figure out how it is that you make these grand ships of states go. And we have basically two major functions that we try to discharge in these cases. One of them is to figure out how it is that we grease the wheels so that transactions can take place, whether they be done by private individuals or by government. And then secondly, what we try to do is to put in a set of mechanisms whereby disputes can be resolved short of force by the introduction of a state, a neutral judiciary, in some cases juries, and up opportunities to be heard, uh, so that in effect we can substitute adjudication for warfare in the operation of the overall system. Uh, what is the lawyer's role in this situation it's, I think important to note. Lawyers are remarkably uncreative people, I think it's important to say. We have never had a bright idea of how to organize a new industry, how to get people together with respect to collective actions. We are essentially the keel on the boat. We are not the sail that propels it forward. Uh, but a boat needs a keel as well as a sail because what it has to do is to find a way to make sure that your enthusiasms do not exceed your capacity. So inside the engine room, our particular job is to do what the great economist and my personal friend Ronald Coase had said, figure out how it is that you try to organize a system so as to minimize frictions and transactions costs where the transactions costs are to social interactions, what frictions are to the operations of physical systems. Uh, They never do you any good, and so uh, to the lawyer, the way in which you try to maximize the level of social welfare from the center is to figure out how it is that you drive those those transactions costs down in order for creative activities to take place. And in order to do that, what we then have to do is to figure out what are the two kinds of things which, by and large, tend to frustrate uh, the organization of a political system. And it turns out that they are as follows. One of them is good old-fashioned aggression. Uh, It's a situation where you use force in all of its forms. You punch people over the head. You start to set traps of one kind or another so they fall in and die. You mislead them by fraud so that they fall to their death, things of that sort. And essentially what we can say is most people who engage in that kind of activity do so for some kind of private gain, but we're equally confident that the losses that come out on the other side of the transaction are far greater, so that it's not a situation in which the way in which you combat force is to have more aggression, What you have to do is to define some sort of collective institutions which can restrain that in the name of the self-preservation of the liberty of all persons in question. This is, I think, the fundamental condition of a society, and introducing the rule of law, which essentially finds ways to curb that kind of aggression, is in fact the first and paramount task. But it is not the only task that you have to face when you're trying to organize a society. There are problems of coordination that also take place that sometimes cannot be achieved by voluntary means. Ideally, if you can get everybody together by way of a contract, that would be perfectly wonderful because you could be confident if it were indeed a voluntary contract, everybody would come out the winner. But when it comes to organizing certain kinds of organizations, it turns out that voluntary solutions are not possible and we have to start thinking of collective type of arrangements. And in doing this, I think it's important to remember from the very beginning of the legal system. It had never been devoted solely and exclusively to the protection and organization of private property. One of the subjects that I teach on a regular basis now for over 40 years is Roman law. And if you go back and you read the beginning text on this particular subject, the first thing they start to talk about is common property. And only after they've understood what makes property common work, do they start to talk about private property? And if you want to get a sort of homely biological analogy as to what this situation starts to look like, what I recommend you do is to think about your own bodies for a second, and you realize that you have two kinds of organs inside of it. One of them is the long and skinny. You have a neural system which goes from one end to the other, and then you also have a blood supply which has exactly the same kinds of situations. If, in fact, you were to cut either the nerves on the one hand or the blood supply on the other, the entire system would fall to pieces. When you're talking about a social system, you also have the long and skinny. Think of them as rivers and trails, streets and highways and so forth. And the key point to understand, it's only if these things are subject to various kinds of rules of open access can you have communication back and forth between individuals who occupy private parts of land. And to put the analogy again one step further, inside the body not only do we have the long and skinny, but we also have the short, square, and squat, the various kinds of organs which are highly specialized in what they do, which are communicated or connected with each other through these other two systems. And in a social system, The private property is in fact the factories, the farms, the houses that are beside the road so that the ideal nature of the particular system in question requires that you have common and open access to a communication network of one kind or another coupled with productive centers that start to take place with houses, farms, factories, and so forth. And indeed, this is not a peculiar feature of this or that society. No matter where you go or no matter what you do, that kind of dichotomy exists. And it's important to understand that because many of the critics of private property do not understand the way in which the more sophisticated defenders of private property argue for an optimal mix of those things which are collectively operated for the communication, transportation, and so forth, and those things which are privately controlled. Now, once you look at these two things, you can see what the perils turn out to be. With respect to these highways and so forth, what you have to do is to make sure that they do not get divided, they do not get snipped. The famous Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 was designed to make sure that there weren't an endless series of toll gates along the Rhine River, which would in fact destroy communication. So what you needed was collective action to make sure that the rivers would not be privatized. On the other hand, if you have land which is privately developed, privately owned, privately defended, and you allow somebody else to take it, what happens is those who are not allowed to sow will not be willing to, will not be able to be reaped or to put it in another way, if you wish to get something at the back end, you have to give an incentive for people to put the front end investment in so that you now have the explanation as to how it is long and durable private property lives with these farms and so forth can create the overall system in question. So the question is what kind of legal system do we start to use in order to organize these kinds of complex objectives? And here, what we do is we first have rules of acquisition. Uh, how does somebody gets to property? I'm not gonna defend elaborately the novel proposition that each of us owns our own body, because the alternative is either a system of collective ownership which immobilizes us all, or a system of slavery which allows the few to exploit the many. But once you have those people, they cannot take something out of the common if it's a river or a trail, but they can take land, occupy, build, and develop it, so you get private property running in that way. Once you get these two institutions together, the next question that you have to ask is how do you maintain and defend them? And here you get two other great bodies of law which help put the system in greater coherence. The first of these is what we call the law of tort. And what that means in effect is we now have a general rule which says that one person is not allowed to trespass against the person or the property of another individual. That's the way in which we want to control against aggression. Sometimes we say we're controlling against externalities. That latter term is much too broad to be truly safe. You have to be much more careful in the way in which you use it. Why is that the case? Because many people get disappointed if it turns out that a competitor comes along and offers a good for a lower price with a higher quality so that all their efforts to create wealth by their own labor is now smashed by that kind of opposition. But the key thing to start to remember is that if we start with the trespass situations, we're stopping these negative sum games where everybody is made worse off by the repeated application of force by one person against another. But if you now combine classical liberal theory in the legal side with modern economic theory, What you understand is that the competition, which results in disappointed competitors, necessarily results in a higher level of social output than any alternative system known to man, including that of state monopolies, whereby the government decides who can produce what and how much can start to take place of various kinds of activities. If one wants to figure out what the great decline in the United States and in Europe has been with respect to social policy, it has been exactly the confusion that I've just mentioned between physical externalities and fraud externalities and competitive externalities, whereby what we do is we say, in effect, that certain people suffer from ruinous competition when somebody else comes up with a better mousetrap or a cheaper good to sell, and so therefore the state has to intervene in order to prevent these things from taking place. Yes. <laughs> And the great transformation that is associated with the move from classical liberal philosophy, which is not libertarianism in the sense that collective action by the state is not appropriate, to the modern progressive system, which believes in lots of government management and so forth, is that the class of permissible externalities for government regulation is to the modern progressive and to some extent to the modern Keynesian, um, various kinds of competitive distortions taken by by innovation, and it's exactly that mistake which creates the greatest problem that we face, because it means that we turn an efficient economy which has a competitive industry into one that becomes much more monopolistic. Now, there was something which was said by Mr. Sidelsky, which I think, in fact, is worthy of some kind of comment about our good friend Hayek, and indeed, I have actually written an article called Hayekian Socialism, which attacked Hayek for doing exactly the thing that he should not have done which was to understand that if you have to understand the liberta- limitations of an ordinary libertarian theory involving force and fraud, it means that what you have to do is to go into a huge set of pro subsidies in the redistributive state. One of the things that lawyers have always known is there are actually three states of the world that you have to take into account. One is pure competition, which is generally speaking an extremely good and benevolent type of situation. The other is naked aggression, which you have to forestall. But the middle case has to do with the situation of monopolies. And what is striking about the difference between lawyers on the one hand and political philosophers like Keynes on the one hand and Hayek on the other is that the philosophers tend to ignore this middle case, even though it explains huge portions of the economy that you're familiar with under the rubric of public utility regulation, railroad regulation, internet regulation, and so forth. It turns out that the creation of certain kinds of complex networks and services are not amenable to competitive solutions because unless everybody can cooperate, nobody can in effect benefit from these operations. Think of how it would be if the telephone business were organized by competitive industries and competitive firms, none of which could connect to one another. Uh, So what the good old lawyer starts to think about is how it is that you can create the gains from these networks without getting monopoly exploitation. And the mechanism that is introduced in order to control that is, in fact, a non-discrimination rule which says that people are entitled to a fair and reasonable investment returns on a non-discriminatory basis from their assets. And this, in effect, is a way of saying, well, let the monopolist get as much money in order to operate its facilities, but we won't give it the untrammeled control over prices so it can exploit everybody else. Now there's an instructive lesson that comes from this because this model of essentially trying to limit what monopolists can do in the private market by these rules on just rates of return and non-discrimination is in fact the template for the way in which the state, when it exercises its monopoly of force, should operate as well. And all the rules about forced exchange through taxation and through condemnation are illustrations of how it is that you don't have to have a pure market so long as you understand that a just compensation principle offsets the exercise and use of public force. This leaves only one issue left that one has to deal with, mainly the question of redistribution. And here, I disagree, I think, with most conventional thinkers on on this issue. I think, in generally speaking, we ought not to make that the first of the list. The first thing on the list is always to expand the growth by controlling aggression and controlling monopolies. And then if that starts to fail, you figure out how private incentives can fill the gap. In most cases, the tradition of laissez-faire was notable for its willingness, indeed its insistence, that voluntary charity was required of all those who had something to help those who did not. And that leads you back to the voluntary associations and friendly societies that my friend Mike Munger started to talk about. But understand that when you run this thing through, the redistribution function should not be allowed to wag the dog. And if you're trying to find why it is that the state today has failed in both Europe and the United States. It's its willingness to create monopolistic institutions in competitive industries like labor and agriculture. And the moment you start, in fact, to use government power to create monopolies instead of to limit them, you're going to run a downward course. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: We're now going to move to the second part of our, um, of our event, our conversation. And as I uh, was mentioned earlier, we lost a participant to weather. He's on his way, maybe. If he doesn't make it, I find myself cast in the strange position of defending uh, government intervention and making sure that poor Robert Skidelsky doesn't get ganged up on. So we'll see how that goes. But let's welcome our three speakers back to the stage. So just to uh, put names to faces again, we are very pleased to have with us for this conversation Michael Munger, Robert Skidelsky, and Richard Epstein. I want to start us off with the challenge of Twitter. I'm going to ask each of our three participants. Now, I have to be fair to them. I didn't tell them much in advance about this opening question, so I'm not going to hold them to it precisely. But I want them to tweet their appropriate role for government. So I'm going to give them 144 characters. Since that's a little bit brutal, I'm going to give them a few more sentences. But I want them to start by telling us, briefly, what do they see as the appropriate role for government. And we'll, we'll, for this one, we'll go around the, uh, the group here one by one, and then we'll, we'll open it up to conversation. Michael.
3: All right. I, I said, in a way, the very short kind of haiku answer is that government should be a referee. Government shouldn't be a participant, and government shouldn't be too active in actually making the rules on the fly. There should be a set of rules, and then government should be in charge of enforcing them.
4: Robert? Uh, Three functions, I think. First of all, economic stabilization. Market economies don't um, ensure uh, continuous full use of resources. Secondly, public goods. That is, goods which can't, for various reasons, be produced by markets. And Richard talked of the, about that. And thirdly, uh, enough redistribution uh, to secure fair equality of opportunity for people to realize their potential.
5: Richard. Well, I mean, I start off with the maxim cooperation, yes. Coercion, no. Qualified by saying monopoly, maybe, because sometimes you need them, don't understand? And redistribution, where the first things, three things fail. Added it in the following way, again, as a lawyer, that you must have a very complicated and sensible system of administrative rules which will tell you how you do civil procedure, criminal procedure, and administrative procedure. Uh, that's the stuff in the engine room. It's probably the bulk of what I do as a day-to-day lawyer, and no one should ignore it.
0: So let's turn to the problems of capitalism. Mike, what do you see as the... Uh the biggest challenges that capitalism faces? What are its weaknesses? What should we be worried about?
3: I think we should be very worried about capitalism, and the reason, paradoxically, is that government is in some ways too cooperative with the wishes of capitalists. And I mean that in a, what economists call rent-seeking. Suppose I own a large corporation, or I'm a manager of a large corporation. I have two choices. I can spend money trying to make better, cheaper, new products that people want to buy. I can create value. And the profits that I make from that actually redound to everyone's benefits. Yes, I make profits, but the big benefit is to consumers who are paying for something, they're paying less than its value to them. So that's the way capitalism is supposed to work. But the alternative, and it's identical from the perspective of the owners of the capital itself, is I lobby members of Congress— for contracts, which if I were to make them privately would violate the antitrust laws, I want to have contracts in violation of restraint of trade laws. Now I can't do that because it'll violate the Sherman Act or Robinson-Patman. But I can, if I get a cooperative member of the Senate that you can introduce legislation that's far more unassailable, far more difficult for my competitors to overcome, whether those competitors be in other countries or my competitors be new startups here in the United States. Now, from the perspective of the owner, from the stockholders, the people that I answer to as the manager of this corporation, which one should I do? They don't care. And in fact, if I refuse to do the rent-seeking, lobbying, use government to protect my profits route, I'll be fired or I'll suffer from an unfriendly takeover because that capital has a higher-valued use in rent-seeking. So government somehow must armor itself against the blandishments of interest groups. So the problem that we have is precisely that government is too susceptible. And this, I sound like a Marxist at this point, but this is actually, I think Marx was the first public choice theorist. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you don't sound like a Marxist to me. Marx, Marx has a different conclusion. Marx says get rid of the corporations. I say find a way to prevent government from being bought and paid for by
0: corporations. Richard, do you think yeah, capitalism I, has any weaknesses uh, that well, need to be addressed? Of course. Uh, I mean, on the,
5: on the Marxist point, I don't think that's the central issue. I think he thought exploitation of labor through... Um, contracts which were winning on one side and losing on the other. And I think he was wrong about that. I think the fundamental difference on that point is that most of us believe that voluntary contracts result in mutual gains between the parties, and the problem is whether or not, as with Monopoly, the external effects are negative and override those gains. But I think in many ways the situation is even worse than Mike says it is, because I'm going to go back into the engine room again. One of the great contributions of the American antitrust law was a case called Parker and Ground in 1943. And what you did is you found that the states organized a raisin cartel where all the costs would be paid by people outside the state. And the Supreme Court was so enamored of the fact that there was government protection for this that it said it was legal against the Sherman Act precisely because the state ratified it, whereas a good economist would say, oh, my God, a state-run cartel, in fact, is durable. It won't break down for cheating. So this is essentially the problem that you see is that you look at these societies, and we are busy in the United States and in many other places taking competitive industries using government resources to convert them into monopolies. When I wrote a book called Takings Now some 28 years ago, uh, the basic logic of this book was that every transaction that you have, either voluntary or coercive, should result in positive sums for all the people who are involved. Monopoly always creates negative sums at positive costs, so it's a double loser. And controlling that, I think, is the most important thing, and to the extent that monopolization and capitalism are equated, it does a great disservice to the capitalist institutions.
0: Robert?
4: Yeah, I'd like to um, disagree with both Michael and Richard. Sorry, can I call you by your Christian names? I I think that, um, sure, there's been too much um, uh, collusion between um, the state and and, 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 and certain uh, interests. I mean, particularly financial interests. I mean, basically, basically, um, the the um, the state um, has um, uh, deregulated the financial sector at the behest of the financial sector to the point at which um, a lot of its activities, quite simply, um, are, are waste. I mean, a lot of a lot of finance is simply rent extraction. Um, and uh, has no social justification and people um, at the top of the profession get paid far too much for the value they actually render to society.
3: Is this the part where you disagree?
4: Um, This is the part where I... I, I'm going to disagree in a second. This is the part where I think, you know, I agree. Now, um, uh, but, and then to go, go to the part where I disagree with Richard, I don't think monopoly... Um, I mean, monopoly is bad and monopoly is a great source of uh, misallocation and all that. But even if you had a perfectly competitive market system without any of these distortions, you would still need an economic role for the state in stabilization because you would not get um, the full uh, utilization of resources under a freely competitive market system because you have severe information problems. And if you take um, the argument for saying that a market system would always achieve optimal equilibrium, you find it does depend on perfect information. Now, we do not have perfect information. The future is very uh, uncertain. And we have asymmetric information problems anyway.
5: No, I disagree with that. And let me explain why. Um, As I mentioned earlier on, the central problem of every legal system is how to deal with friction. Imperfect information is one of those things, but it is a very dangerous leap to say that by virtue of the fact that there are gaps in information markets that only governments can stabilize it. One of the things that private markets do is they introduce all sorts of intermediates who have exactly that kind of role. These are people who are brokers and various kinds of exchange entities, and the theory is if they have enough information, they can basically organize both sides of the. That's a theory. But it's, no, no, it's not a theory. It's a theory in which if you look at the thousands upon thousands of people who fill exactly those kinds of rules, getting people paying on both sides of the market for their services it's fine one of the great achievements with respect to the financial markets apart from the disaster is the creation of such
4: institutions That's like That's a the... huge qualification.
5: No, no 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 let me no, <laughs> let me explain what the system is. You know look the financial markets will never be purely competitive for the simple observation that runs on bank of the kinds of things which it's very difficult for private institutions to control against. And so you have to worry about that and remember when I said you needed to regulate antitrust laws, that's a concession for government roles and some kind of market failures. But the ability essentially for large numbers of people to participate in markets depends upon the ability to create intermediates Who, in effect, will take certain kinds of financial instruments, which would be much too risky if concentrated in some hands, and to spread them out over a larger situation? And those markets, most of them have actually succeeded. Some of them have failed. Where they have failed most notably has been in the real estate market. But that's the area in which the intermediation has been covered with government guarantees and alterations of public money supply. So you can't treat it as purely a private failure. There's also some serious technical problems in that market. Most of the people who, in effect, engaged in securitization thought they were diversifying against all risks, That turns out to be wrong. There are many risks which are systemic and for which securitization and partition of assets doesn't work. You need 2.0. There are market failures in that case. But interestingly enough, none of the regulations in the SEC and so forth that were designed to counteract those things had any positive effect on the way these were organized.
0: Okay, I'm going to let Robert respond, and then Mike's going to jump in if he'd like to. Go ahead, Robert. But the market failures here are colossal. Um, or this particular
4: market failure because it actually has involved um, the economy uh, of the world in the biggest slump we've had since the Great Depression. Now of course in in the United States it's now coming out of it a bit better than Europe but the loss of output income jobs over the last five years has been colossal. We're about 10% poorer than we would have been had we been growing um, at the old rate. Now you talk about the market failure. That is a huge market failure. What's more Many of the uh, financial, much of the financial innovation, um, which was the product of the last uh, 10 years or so, and particularly in the development of derivative instruments of one kind or another, were precisely designed to, to diversify risk so that something like this couldn't happen. Now it did happen. Now, what's, so where do you go on from there? And, and I think you go on from there um, to say that look, a lot of these risks cannot be guarded against except by state policy. I don't mean by state regulation of the banking system. I don't even mean by breaking up bigger banks, but. State action to maintain a a level of demand consistent with a reasonably full utilization of resources. So the market fluctuates, you let that happen, but the state continues a steady stream of investment. And that's what worked in the 1950s, 1960s, and on the whole I think that was a better period than the one we've had in the last 20 years.
0: Mike, do you want to uh, respond to that? Of course. Please do. A parable. (laughs)
3: Behold the unicorn. Now, the unicorn is the ideal pack animal. It can carry large amounts of cargo. It eats nothing but rainbows. And its flatulence smells of fresh strawberries. (laughs) It's clearly the ideal pack animal, save for one thing, it doesn't exist. The state is a unicorn. There's no such thing as the state. Maggie Thatcher famously said there's no such thing as society. I clearly disagree with that, but I understand what she meant. There's no such thing as the collective, the uber mind, that has all the information that markets are assumed to lack. So I would hope that before you say markets fail, that is, the first pig is ugly, and therefore I want the unseen pig, in this case a unicorn, to solve these problems for me, substitute in this. Next time you say, I want the state to do X. Say, I want politicians I actually know to be in charge of this. Because they're better informed. Because they have a longer time horizon. And I think you'll see that that's nonsense. Politicians are looking for the next election. If they lose, they're done. Now, it's perfectly true that people in markets stockholders, managers, have very short time horizons. But so do politicians. We're in a situation where we have two pretty bad choices. And the idea that we're going to pick one over the other means that we're doomed to continue to make the mistakes that have gotten us to this point in the first place.
5: Now, I have a suggestion about what the intermediate solution ought to look about. And I disagree with Professor Skidelsky when he says that this is all a market failure. Um, I remember having a conversation... With, I guess it was Senator Dodd or Representative Dodd uh, about the Dodd Frank bill. Senator Dodd, I I repress. Uh, And he said, I said, what about Fannie and Freddie? He said, we didn't have time to get to that. And and, and I said to myself, what world does he live in? And and the reason is that when you start looking at the American financial consequence crisis and the things it produced, uh, what you did is you had the governor. Government is a guarantor of last resort, which is guaranteed to create irresponsible private behavior by banks who look to the guarantee rather than to the security. So that's a big government failure. Then on the other hand, you have the guys running the Fed churning out money like there's no tomorrow. And the only way people can get their hands on that particular money through low interest rates is to bid up the cost of the complementary asset, i.e. the real estate. And so here you have a mixture of bad public incentives and in effect, these kinds of very bad private responses. Because one of the things that the good capitalist or market defender believes is that all market firms are vulnerable to corruption, no matter what their politics, no matter what's going on. So the issue is how it is you reduce the discretion. And on this point, I would just like to mention that one of Milton Friedman's great achievements was not his defense of markets but the defense of the kind of monetarism which was designed to introduce this form of stability, whereby you tried to keep the money supply, difficult to find to be sure, roughly proportionate to the level of goods so that the interest remains, rates remain relatively constant so that long-term contracts could take place without that incredible uncertainty that takes place with currency risk fluctuation. And remember, every single private contract involving pounds or dollars has a state component associated with its operation.
3: But Richard, it sounds like you're just renaming. You're conceding Dr. Sadelsky's point. No, but I'm you're, not. You're look, renaming I'm, I'm it. not even conceding anything. That's not my life. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm trying to say, look, there's a middle position <laughs> You're just in
5: renaming it. it. No, I'm not. I'm trying to say what the particular functions are and what the particular malfeasances were. Because I do think that you're wrong to the extent that you think that we can somehow or other run a monetary system um, by, say, turning to a gold standard or something which would be independent of government in control look I, when I you mentioned the title of my book right Design for Liberty Private Property Public Administration and the Rule of Law that middle piece is as much a part of this system as anything else and when you run it very badly you get very bad results and to that extent I agree with Dr. Skidelsky but I disagree with him as to whether it's an all or nothing situation and how you define uh, what the particular risks were in these cases. I also think that blockades on international trade of one kind or another, particularly in the Depression, really mattered. So. What you need to do is to go back to the kind of Adam Smith, broad taxes, open markets, distaste of monopoly, redistribution last, and you'll do a lot better than we will with these
4: modern confections. Of course it's not an all or nothing thing. I mean, only only extremists or cranks believe it's an all or nothing nothing thing, and we haven't got any of those on on, on this platform. So you've got to you've got to find out what are, the, what, what are the things markets do well and where they should be encouraged in all things and what are the things they don't do um, which can only be filled in some other way by regulation um, or by actual state action I had a correspondence with Milton Friedman about this um, and um, I, I, showed him, I showed him the manuscript of uh, my uh, biography of Keynes whom he greatly admired by the way Um, And he said, well, you know, the thing is, had Keynes um, uh, been brought up in the United States, uh, he wouldn't have had this idealistic view of government that he apparently has having been brought up in in England because he would have recognised that government is corrupt, rent-seeking and all this kind of thing and he wouldn't have been willing to entrust it with such um, um, powers and that was echoed in your statement. Have you met a politician? If you had met an actual politician um, you'd realise how how, um, uh, inadequate they were but the point is the state is not just politicians who get elected every two or three years. The state is, is, is an administration and there are people there who work for the State Department or Treasury, that's their careers. And they do have long-term goals, and they are not um, simply simply overturned by the the whims of of politicians coming and going. So you've got to always think of the administration, and there is a long-term element there. Second point, last point, is, you know, The trouble is, um, Friedman was defeated on monetarism and monetarism was defeated because they could not identify um, the correct money supply. And the money supply proved to be a movable aggregate and they couldn't fix it. And that's why there are no pure monetarists in any central banks today. Um, They tried for a long time. What they do in central banks is not to try and fix some uh, monetary aggregate, but to try and fix something like um, like they fix inflation rates. And and that is the target they've been aiming for. When you actually come to their attempts to use monetary policy in the present crisis, um, which should uh, work if if you believe in the quantity theory of money, you find the results have been very, very mediocre and rather unpredictable. Better in some countries than in others.
0: Let me just make a a strong statement to challenge the group with related to this question. It's a fair criticism, I think, that Robert just made, uh, that monetary policy appears to have been quite disappointing. I would say the same thing about fiscal policy. We spent $820 billion here in the United States on the promise that if we didn't do it, unemployment would go to 8.5%. We did do it, and it went over 10 Now, there are many reasons to explain that. But what I want to put forward to the group and get their reaction is, do you think we know enough about monetary and fiscal policy, that is, the use of the money supply, the use of government spending and taxation, to have any control and fulfill the role that Robert Skidelsky is asking for? Now, I'll let Robert go first, because I think he's, he's going to defend that view. So I want him to defend it, and, I, and uh, try not to gang up too much two on one. But I, I would argue, as an economist, that we are woefully inadequate to, to predict the path of the economy under various interventions. And I think we should be more honest about our inability to predict it. we have, have a lot more humility and admit that a lot of what we do is, is simply storytelling yeah. after the fact.
4: Yeah, I, I of course, accept that economists should have a lot more humility. (laughs) They pretend to an omniscience um, that they don't have their their, uh, disciplinary imperialists uh, without any real right to be. Uh, They pretend to sort of exact knowledge when all they have is rather imprecise knowledge and so on. I agree with all that.
0: And they're Dalit parties. Ah, You can go
4: on and I'd agree with that too. (laughs) It's a long list. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and a lot of them anyway work for private corporations and therefore aren't, aren't disinterested, as disinterested as they claim. But... But having said that, I think government fiscal and monetary policies can improve on, the out, on outcomes, um, in, especially in situations which, such as we've experienced since 2008-2009. Just one point. If you compare what happened in the Great Depression when governments deliberately tried not to intervene and what happened in 2008-2009, you have the same, exactly the same downward slope for five months in both cases, and then in 2008, 2009, there was a flattening, whereas in two, 1929 to 1932, it went on for another, another eight quarters. Sorry, I'm talking of quarters, not months. And I think that was due to government intervention. I think they improved on the outcome that would have resulted had there been no intervention. No, can I? I know it's a counterfactual, no,
2: no, but me, I've got some me, data.
5: I think it's it's really complicated for another reason. Um, if you start looking at the earlier period, what happens is we did have government intervention in the United States in the form of massive deflation, which essentially screwed up all long-term contracts and resulted in massive. Yes, it resulted in the foreclosures on long-term things and the bank. Run. You want
0: to jump in I, first? I had, it ahead.
4: wasn't it wasn't the
5: government. Well, well deflation is created by the change in money supply. Yeah, creation, I, yeah. But it when, 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 turns out when Hoover did not, and Roosevelt later did not reinflate the currency. It turned out that the contracts which were denominated in fixed dollars essentially could not be paid by farmers. It was Fed, not government. Well, well the Fed is the government. I mean, for these purposes, I'm not going to try to distinguish yeah. which part of the government is responsible, but the only point I'm trying to make...
3: In fact, the Fed is the unelected expert, as yes. you say, are yes. the best. Yes, I mean,
5: uh, these guys are government figures. The intervention on the tariff markets was smooth Hawley, When that statute passed, the market, which was slowly beginning to recover in early 1930s, Again, took another nosedive. Then Roosevelt comes in, far from being non-interventionist. The man was the cartel king of the Western civilization. Hundreds upon thousands of these things were set up, one more destructive and insane than the other. And in fact, the only good thing he did, since he didn't lower tax rates, was to try to prime the pump, not because it's the first best solution, but because it was the second best solution. If you kill private investment through a 62% tax rate under the Revenue Act of 1932, either you spend from the public side or you don't spend at all. But to say that this was a period in which there was no government intervention (laughs) is American fantasy.
4: you, You know as well as I do that a correlation isn't a cause. The money supply did collapse between 1929 and 1932. What caused it to collapse? Um, mistakes by the Fed as, as, as Friedman uh, believed and Bernanke followed, or was it the collapse of business and therefore collapse in the demand for money? The jury's out on that. No one knows the answer. And I take the view that it was the collapse uh, in the demand for, for, for money, demand for investment that caused the money supply to collapse. We're not going to agree on this this afternoon.
0: Well, I'm going to, I'm going to help you, yeah. which is a novel experience. Really? Yeah, let, okay. me, let me join in. I, I, uh, think, I think on this issue, I'm on your side, I think it's extremely uh, difficult to argue that it's government's fault that it didn't reinflate. You have to go to a... So I would disagree with you, Richard. I think you have to go to a second level of argument that the – and this is what I think Friedman said. He said the existing regulations that the Fed had imposed stopped the system from naturally reinflating, exacerbated, worsened the deflation. But I – we have to admit, I think those of us who like capitalism here the, the, the three of us, one of us trying to stay quiet, that's me. But, but the Not three of us a very good job. But the, thank you. The three of us on this panel who like capitalism have to admit that sometimes the money supply collapses that has nothing to do with the Fed. And I would say the financial crisis of 2008 would be another example where the shadow banking system through a set of again we could debate how much of that collapse was due to government mistakes and in an encouraging Moral hazard and and bad investments. How much it was due to natural forces within capitalism, but the contraction of the money supply that occurred in the aftermath of the financial crisis is part of the problem. Okay, so I don't think I raise a different problem though, which is that Herbert Hoover spent a lot more money in 1932, 31, and 30 than he did in 29. He was an early Roosevelt uh, practitioner. He was. He would be a Keynesian in his in many senses. And what he actually did. And so I think the jury is out on whether fiscal policy actually works. Can I make another observation? Yeah, and a short one, though, because Robert needs to respond to me. Uh, yeah, but
5: um, look, one of the things that I, I think follows from what Russ said is that it's very difficult to draw any inferences to whether deficit spending or austerity is going to give you a better result, and the results seem to be very clouded on that. But the one unambiguous thing that has taken place is the enormous increase of the unemployment rate both in Europe on the one hand and in the United States on the other. And we know what the causes of those things are and we know what the cures for that is. This is a situation in which the level of direct regulation on voluntary exchange has increased exponentially since earlier times. It's a cross between family leave laws, sick leave laws, minimum wage laws, Fair Labor Standards Act, anti-discrimination laws, union protections and so forth, special gimmicks here, there and the other place. Uh, the unambiguous prescription is not to try and guess the monetary aggregates on fiscal and monetary, but to simply remove all of that stuff and get yourself back to a situation where labor markets were much freer. That will have some effect on the employment rates, and that will improve everything else. And the unwillingness of the macro types to talk about those micro issues, i.e. concerning 150 million people, is, I think, a colossal mistake.
0: Robert, well, responded to that, yeah, Mike. I mean...
4: I just, I just think you fail to distinguish between short- and long-term things. How can you attribute the massive increase in unemployment since 2008 to regulations that have been enforced for 10, 15, 20 years? I mean, what? what well, minimum wage legislation. You no, know,
5: it's what the minimum wage is. It's not the minimum- fact that there's a law. It goes up
4: in 2005 to
5: 2007 by 30-odd
4: percent. Unemployment in Britain rose... Um, by, increased by, it doubled without any change in the minimum wage law. Look, any, any common sense view would be that the big increase in unemployment since 2008-2009 was due to the collapse of the economy. Output has just collapsed. It collapsed terrifically in that, those two years. That cannot be the result of changes in regulation over the period. Can- it was the result of the fall in demand. I mean... Any, any economist will tell you that, even if they believe that, uh, that uh, fiscal policy isn't necessarily the right answer.
3: Mike? So it's interesting to think about Greenspan's famous cri de corps uh, in congressional t- testimony, where he said that the set of regulations, or actually in some ways deregulations, that had been put in place, he f- had thought would be okay because of the inherently self-correcting mechanisms that capitalism and that financial capitalism in particular had, and it didn't. And so I, I think that's an important point in Robert's favor, that the, if, if you think that there's inherent corrective mechanisms that are so strong that reputation and the fact that you're going to lose enormous amounts of money are going to be sufficient to have the system be self-correcting that incident seems to have that it was mistaken. Now, I would say that the reason that there were no self-correcting mechanisms in capitalism were that financial firms that were large enough knew that they were playing with house money. Either I would keep winning and I'd get to keep it, or if I would lose enough money, I'd be bailed out. Now, I don't think that's deregulation. I think that is an inability of government to commit not to reward extremely risky behavior. But I admit it's a pretty subtle point. Is the failure there the inability of government to commit, or the willingness of these large financial firms to steal money from taxpayers?
0: I'm going to add a footnote to that and let Robert respond. No. I think it's particularly repellent that Alan Greenspan made that mea culpa in front of Congress. Because Greenspan stood up and he said, all my life I've thought that markets were great and they could self-regulate, and I have to, I have to readjust my position. This is a man, who's famous for being a friend of Ayn Rand, the, the, the I wouldn't call her the patron saint of at, at capitalism. At least a friend. The, the something of capitalism. What did you call it? What? He was at least a friend. At least a friend, exactly. Maybe they were very close. Uh, I don't read enough biographies <laughs> to expand on that, fortunately. So here's a man who's, who is identified in the public eye as the capitalist, who, sta- who grovels in front of a congressional committee to say, I, I, you know, makes this this. this confession that he was wrong. And it sounds nice, except for one thing. As you point out, there's an alternative explanation, which is we had taken away the lost side of the calculation. The reason it's repellent, the reason it's disgusting, is that Alan Greenspan was one of the driving forces behind that removal of those incentives. He is famous for what is called the Greenspan put, which means that he wouldn't let asset prices go down. He manipulated money supply to keep Wall Street happy. In 1995, he testified in front of Congress, that we, we, you, and me, had to guarantee loans to Mexico because they had to. It would be too horrible if they failed. Even though it's not good, good policy. Said it's the worst of a bad alternative. Instead of what we really did, we didn't bail out Mexico. We bailed out the banks that had lent Mexico money. In 1998, he spearheaded the, the redemption, the saving of long-term capital management, a hedge fund, mm-hmm. which had really no systemic risk at all. But because that's where I believe the Federal Reserve's bread is buttered in New York City, by the people on their board. So for him to say he's learned a lesson, and he's become an interventionist, is a little bit obscene. Sorry about that outburst. I want to let Robert respond, and then, then Richard. Ah, very, I, I, I'm a supply-sider in many, many, many ways, and
4: one of the supply-side uh, institutions that needs uh, reforming is the banking system. There are lots of ways you can do it. I'm in favor of competition. Um, I think that um, I'm in favor of competition. I would, I would um, do what I think they, 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 they do um, in the UK now, they've started to do. Um, you can't abolish deposit insurance, whatever, whatever, whatever people say. Um, it's not going to be de- abolished, but you can confine it to banks that take deposits and then free up all the rest from any, any regulation, really, uh, uh, so that people put in their money and they can lose it and, and, the, and, the, and the government doesn't do anything about it. In that way, you remove the problem of, of banks being too big to fail. So I would do that. that I, I stop at this point, but I'd like to come back to fiscal policy because it was mentioned and I have another word to say about it.
5: Good. Look, I I want to agree with the last several comments, so a note of amity. But I want to sort of take issue with the question of why it is that things are so much worse now than they were before. And I think the changes in the systems of regulation and taxation, at least in the United States, have taken a very deep turn for the South, which help explain some of these particular problems. Um, I'm somebody who works on the regulatory budget side of these things because that's what I do for a living in many ways. This stuff has expanded. Let me give you but one indication of what an alternative theory is. Uncertainty when it increases is like an implicit tax. And uncertainty is a tax on both supply and demand. If you look, for example, in the United States today and ask yourself what certainty you have with respect to the tax structure in this country, what has happened is there's not a single important tax rate that we have whose shape or whose duration is now known to anybody for a period of more than a year or two. We had an entire year where the estate tax just disappeared because these guys couldn't get their act together. Every one of these times we reorganize these things. You could have steeper progressivity, excise taxes, special capital gains taxes. They come and go. We will have the health care taxes coming on top of this. Uh, If you want to essentially have a government, you have to have long-term stability in government rules just as you want to have long-term stability in the way in which corporate shares and businesses run. And I think, in effect, that that major decline has created uncertainty which hurts both sides of the market. And the implication is a stimulus program will fail because it's targeted to shortness on the demand side, whereas an uncertainty theory will be much more accurate because it says it doesn't matter what you do on the demand side because the uncertainty is coming through on both sides, and when it comes through on both sides, it collapses all markets. And until you reverse that and have government more constant in what it does and get rid of the fiscal cliff which occurs every six months, you will not get a long-term improvement in the health of the United States.
4: Robert. You cannot explain collapses in output of 5 to 10 percent all over the world, not just in the United States, in 2008 to 9 by um, increases in regulatory pressure or increased uncertainty about tax rates. You cannot do it.
5: No, and this is where I disagree. You could explain I mean, the that's slowness what did, of the recovery. Surely.
4: No, I'm saying the
5: recovery cannot take place in this environment. The thing is, we will have, because of banking failures, given what Russ said, I agree with, it's Monetarism in a pure form, fiscal policies aren't great. But if you don't get the Microsoft more or less correct, you will have exactly what has taken place, the most feeble recovery that we've had in time, precisely because we have not got these organizations under place. You talk to employers and say, why don't you hire somebody anymore? Because they say the load that is put on, which we don't know, is very heavy. So you move to part-time employment, inefficient production. Everybody pulls back on both sides of the market. Let me put it this way, Robert. Is there, you may be right about some things about the macro stuff. Is there anything you could say which would say, you know what? I may be right about the 5%, but I think your proposals are bad nonetheless. Would you concede at least that they had some positive use? Because if they don't have any positive use, then we're on different points. But I've, I've I've already conceded they have positive well, so use. I
4: thought you weren't conceding
5: no, that fiscal policy. No, no, had I didn't say what I said was what Russ said, which is, and I think it's accurate, which is that when you look at this, I said you don't know whether deficits or austerity are going to be better precisely because of the weakness in the knowledge, but it's unambiguous that the removal of uncertainty and of restraints on labor markets and on the creation of monopolies, all of which are mid sized issues, but there's so many of them, uh, that those things would help, and
4: everything in this country has gone in the opposite direction. You're, you're claiming the biggest slice of the cake here. I'm willing to divide it between you. No, no, I'm just
5: <laughs> claiming, no, I'm not even trying to figure out what the side of the cake is. I'm trying to say... Every single micro-policy that we have is anti-growth. I mean, I mean I'm talking about, yeah. take the Patent Act, which you may not know much about, what a disaster all these things are, and they accumulate. And so what I'm trying to say is, if we're uncertain on the macro, we should try and be together on the micro. If we can fix that, we may be able to change the slope. But, well,
0: I'm going to defend Robert, and then I'm going to turn it over let Mike comment. Uh, of course I agree, Richard knows, I agree with him on almost everything he said. The only problem I have is you can't really prove it, right? I, I certainly accept, the, and I, when I, mean prove, it, I don't mean prove it, I don't mean prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean prove it confirming it with any kind of evidence. As Robert said, we have lots of policies that do bad things, at least in theory, that slow down the, the, the labor market, that discourage employers from taking risks, that discourage innovators from taking risks. And yet there's, as Adam Smith said, there's a lot of ruin in a nation, and usually we seem to overcome that ruin. Why is it that sometimes we can overcome it and sometimes we can't? In 1993, 97, 86, 62, 58, the economy was doing pretty well. We had a lot of bad policies. Now, you could argue they reach a tipping point, but my basic argument is that we, as economists, don't have the ability to precisely measure the magnitude of these things. I certainly agree with the direction, Richard, but I don't think we can can measure the magnitude and therefore we are storytellers. Mike. Uh, I'm gonna tell a story. Good. Uh, I is it better than the unicorn? Because that was fabulous. Uh, it's hard to top the unicorn, really. He's got a lot of them. Thank you. Thanks it's an very much.
3: Story. <laughs> this, this is a story, in fact, come back with me to a world where we don't know very much about the germ theory of pathology. It's 1820. And one afternoon, you pick up your daughter, And she's really hot. And you think, oh, she's got a fever. I'd better call the doctor. And so you call the famed Dr. Krugman. (laughs) And Dr. Krugman, he's a professional. He's extremely dedicated. He comes to your house. And he says, your diagnosis is correct. She has a fever. He pulls out a small blade. This is 1820, after all. And he's forced to use the theories that he has available to him. And he opens a small vein on her wrist and he takes half a pint of blood. He says, call me if it doesn't get better. Two hours later, her fever is not abated. In fact, if anything, it's gotten worse. He takes a half pint of blood. By midnight, her fever is unbelievably high. He takes a half pint of blood. Four in the morning, she dies. He says, my God, we didn't bleed her enough. Every single article Paul Krugman writes is basically that theme. There's still still a recession. There's still a recession. The stimulus must not have been big enough. The only conceivable interpretation is the stimulus isn't big enough. It can't be that the underlying theory is incorrect. And to be fair, instead of picking on Paul Krugman, I could have made it Dr. Friedman with pro-market prescriptions. We just don't know much about the macroeconomy. We should not think of the macroeconomy as a machine with levers to pull and dials to turn. We should think of it as an ecosystem. Ecosystems are enormous and complicated and have relationships among species that we may not know much about. You lose one species, the entire ecosystem could collapse. We could get no growth in ways that are very complicated. We don't know enough to say we need a stimulus, or we need more markets. It's an ecosystem, it's not a machine.
4: Robert? Yeah, I think, I think it's an extraordinary story that, because it's exactly the opposite of the prescriptions that actually Krugman and, and the austerity... The austerity programs are bleeding programs. They bleed the patient. And, and, and that's very common sense. They're cutting down, they're cutting down demand, they're cutting down government spending. That's a sort of bleeding process. The Krugman prescription is actually a pumping blood in process. It's exactly the reverse. The the macroeconomic theory is very simple to anyone who gives it a moment's thought. The private sector is increasing its saving. That's a consequence of the slump and its over-leveraging and so forth. If the government increases its saving at the same time, the effect will be a downturn in economic demand and output. Because my... My spending is your income. If I decrease my spending, your income goes down, and so it goes on. That's a straightforward theory. Dr. Krugman is not advertising cutting, cutting. It's a very interesting analogy. Cutting, because bleeding involves cutting. That is what governments in Europe and England, and to some extent the United States, have been doing. And he's
0: been opposing. It's just the wrong analogy. Mike, let Mike respond. His sto- let, let Mike respond, well, the, the, his story. The
3: point is, there's a theory, it has an implication, and the conclusion from the empirical observation that we didn't succeed is we didn't do whatever it was the theory says is important, not that the theory itself is, is incorrect. I don't disagree with you about austerity. I said, we don't know about the other side either. So the point is, I have a theory which I can't possibly test because I hold it as a theology, what? I'm a macroeconomist. I'm a theologian, not an actual person what,
5: who studies markets.
4: But what is the theory, Mark? Well, I will tell you what never the old, told us what
5: no, the theory is. No, it is, is. my um, theory. I mean, there's no question. <laughs> I told you my theory. Well, now I'll tell you my theory. Um, because it's a very different theory. What happens is we increase the degree. You're certainly right to say we have private and public savings together. It's a disaster. But there are two things you could do. What the Keynesian tries to do is to say, oh, there's this private stuff. Well, we'll spend stuff on the public side. Uh, Many times they spend it badly. When they spend it badly, what they do is they decrease the capital base for the long term. So it's a short, long-term trade of great invention. What they're doing, in effect, is instead of fixing the problem, they're trying to create an offset. So this is equivalent to saying, well, the minimum wage drops employment, so we have to subsidize employers. My view is you don't want to do that. You don't want to have two mistakes cancel one another out. What you try to do is to get rid of the first mistake. And how do you try to do that? Well, you try to remove the uncertainty, which makes people on both sides of the market reluctant to do that. If, in fact, you do that, then, in effect, things will start to improve both ways. And what you then do when you start looking into the government and its expenditures is not to figure out how you stimulate an economy, uh, but to figure out how it is that you manage to make sufficient expenditures on infrastructure where they're needed. One of the things that I've actually looked at is, you know, the Obama jobs bill from a couple of years ago. And most of that has simply a corruption of public institutions for long-term expenditures that will ruin the way in which infrastructure is worked. And those things are much more important than the short-term stimulus. So on the political point, to agree with Michael for a second, one of the things that happens in all of these cases is that the effort to try and figure out how you control the short-term disability results in the institutionalization of long-term disasters. So, the price fixing from the New Deal, which took place the same year as the stimulus programs of 1938, while the war stimulus programs were irrelevant and the Fair Labor Standards Act and the Agricultural Adjustment Act and the Civil Aeronautics Board lasted for somewhere between 40 and 60 years. So that's the public choice changer and believe me, I don't accept these skeptics I'm a lawyer I don't expect expect the economy we do know Monopolies, unless they stimulate productions in the patent system are bad. Minimum wages don't do any good. You can't figure out how bad they are unless you know the relationship between the minimum wage and the market wage to give you some sense. And that's why, in effect, as you start boosting those things up, the impacts will become much greater, whereas earlier on at a lower level they might have been negligible. I think we do know all of that stuff. And so deregulate, flatten the tax structure, get rid of the political intrigue, and push on the levers that you want understand instead of having the theological debates on the things that these eminent economists don't
4: understand, no. and frankly, I don't understand either. Okay. I think economists understand a lot, and I think every, they understand that everything you said is, is, is right. I think we ought to press off on these things. The point is that in the short run, <laughs> and I emphasize short run, they don't do anything to increase employment or output. Their effects will be to enlarge, the, if you say, the capital base for future, uh, future years. And a short run that lasts 5 or 10 years in which the economy is seriously um, mm. uh, depressed or, or underemployed um, and in which the fiscal policies seem to be failing is actually to risk Um, a lot of of political damage to your system. I think people's tolerance of going through the ringer uh, for longer term advantages is actually quite limited and I think we're starting to see this in Europe. Um, you might say that Roosevelt's New Deal failed economically, though I don't, I don't, um, I don't accept that. I think uh, it didn't fail economically. The counterfactual is that the United States would have recovered quicker uh, if the New Deal hadn't happened, and I, I think that's unprovable. But I think he did a lot of political good. Roosevelt. I think the mood was very, very ugly in 1931, 1932, and I think the New Deal. I wouldn't say it saved democracy for the United States, but it made it easier um, to to preserve a Hayekian system, as I, as I um, uh, emphasized in my lecture, a Hayekian system of political liberty. Um, so I think it did good political work. The, you can argue about the economics, and I feel that if you neglect the short run and concentrate just on the things Richard um, Epstein has been talking about, you run serious political work. Now,
0: my only, my only worry, and I think, again, I'm going to be the, the skeptic here, is that we don't understand the short run or the long run. And my worry is, is that when you go to give that blood transfusion to that little girl in her right arm, you're taking the blood from the left arm. That system is not going to work very well. That's essentially part of what we do, right? The resources have to come from somewhere. Now, you could argue that they are being doing nothing in the private sector so that when we borrow the money to fund those government spending projects, that it that it's somehow is a net positive. But I think it's very hard to sustain that when the project, when the money's, when the money's poorly spent. I want to quote Robert Skidelsky, though, because I think this is for me the bottom line of this conversation, this piece of the conversation. Then we're going to shift gears. When John Popola and I interviewed Robert for uh, our Econ Stories Keynes Hayek Rap video auxiliary material, Robert said something quite profound. He said it without irony. I think. I think you stated it simply as a fact. He said. Said economics isn't a progressive science, and by that what you meant was we don't learn a lot. As we, it's not like physics, we, it's amazing how little we have learned about the workings of the macroeconomy since the Great Depression. You'd think by now, after 70 or 80 years, we would have mastered it. We're, I would argue we're not close, but you're more optimistic. You want to close on that?
4: Yeah, I'll, I'll close. I think that in all the areas um, Richard has been talking about and you, Michael, we know economics has made progress. Economics ought really to have been confined to microeconomics, and I agree with Hayek on that. Unfortunately, the microeconomy left to itself is not stable. There've, and there have got to be things that government has to do. Therefore, we have to have a theory of government economic policy. What should the state do in the economy? And on that theory, and on that, the theory is not very precise. Okay, I,
5: just, can I disagree on one sure, point, which is the question of how rapid people respond to short-term incentives with respect to markets. And I'm going to give just a little illustration. Um, a couple. One of them is there's this nice piece about, by George Stigler and Milton Friedman together, trying to talk about the responses of markets. And what they do is they take first San Francisco, where everything is blown up by an earthquake, and they ask, how long does it take markets to equilibrate so that supply and demand are back to what they were before? And the answer is about a year. Um, what happens is the high prices induce massive influx of capital, and things start to slow down as the rates start to stabilize. You look at the energy markets, you open them up, the level of improvement is just enormous. Take rent control in New York City, where we were going to stabilize this stuff in the short run for the long-term benefit with three-year statutes. The current stabilization scheme was introduced in 1969. It has to be renewed every three years. It's renewed if the vacancy rates remain below 5% because there's no stimulation. It turns out the market is a two-tier market and a disaster because every three years since 1969 to the Present. Nothing has changed by virtue of that system. It's in complete stasis. And so the real question is, do we learn something about the rate of change? And with regulation, what happens is the rate of change is zero. With the markets, the equilibration takes place more in one year than under regulation. In a place like New York, it's taken place in 44 years. What does it result in? Some people live in princely accommodations at bargain prices, and everybody else scrubs around the edges for the marginal. You not only get regulation; you get mal redistribution and two-tier systems. You deregulate. I can assure you, this idea is going to take five to ten years to get things back. is crazy. Deregulate these markets within a
4: week, you will start to see businesses forming. Bad, bad, bad counsel. Um, no, bad right counsel. counsel. You're, you're, you're assuming completely flexible wages and prices no, no, and mobility. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Sure. No, well, I'm so going to defa-
0: defend Robert and say that, well, the housing market works great when you leave it alone, and I agree with that, but whether the whole macroeconomy works well on its own remains to be seen. And we're going to debate that for 100 years Uh-oh. as to whether the main source of business cycle fluctuations of the last yeah. 100 years is due to government mistakes or private errors. Only, and- in, only in the United
4: States is it... There, is there a majority that believe it's due to government mistakes? Well, now, that may be... There maybe may be something a, to be proud of. There, maybe uh, thank you. Maybe, uh, maybe something to be proud of. It may be there's a cultural difference. We have a particularly um, and, bad government. Or uh,
2: yeah.
4: um, well, it may no, be I that mean, you have uniquely bad government. I don't believe the latter is true. I think there are differences yeah. of perception.
5: No, I also think that you mentioned flexibility. One of the most striking features about the Amman economy is essentially the continuous adjustments of prices in market after market given the improvements of technology. Labor markets are always a little bit more sticky, but there's a reason for that. It's not that they're sticky stupid, they're sticky smart. If you have a long-term contract, essentially you keep a stable raise and you have movements up and down it. They cancel out over periods. So you don't want to have the movement because it's a transaction cost without a gain. But if you look at day spot markets for labor, those things do fluctuate very rapidly. And so I think that the point here is that technology has undermined the Keynesian assumptions that the rigidities in some sectors of the market and not in others. And in fact, if we just let this thing go a little bit more free, since there's more gains to information when you can actually fluctuate prices, you will see a greater sophistication through these intermediates in making these markets work.
4: Can I tell you a story on that very point? In, 19, in 1981, and it goes back, I mentioned Margaret Thatcher at the beginning of, um, beginning of my talk. In 1981, um, there was uh, a big, uh, big uh, uh, inflation rate in, in the UK. It had gone up. Um, it was over 20%. And the government had a policy of uh, eliminating inflation. How was, how was it to be done? And they um, actually developed something called a medium-term financial strategy, which is that year by year, they would aim to reduce the rate of growth of the money supply. And they thought expectations would ad- ad- adjust. A five-year program. And Hayek wrote an article, in fact, he this was his private advice to criticising that gradualist strategy. He said it would never work um, because it would be derailed on the way. What you have to do, he said, is to... reduce cut the money supply growth to zero in one year. What would it mean, he said? There would be 50% unemployment, but it would only last a year. And after that, you would resume in a much healthier way. Now, the governments didn't take his advice, and I think any politician that had attempted to do so would not have been fit for elective office, which is... And, and, and the reason is they wouldn't, no one would take the political risk of having a year in a large country in which 50% of the workforce was out of work. Um, and um, there's a bit of stickiness there which would account for it, what you call stickiness, a bit of stickiness in wages. And therefore, you have to be gradualist about this, and you have to see the world as it is, not the world that the Chicago Law School tells you it should be. Well, NYU now, but no, but that's not, what, <laughs> that's, that's not what we're telling you.
5: We're telling you Sorry, in the fact that, that, that there, I know it's a cheap shop, but you're forgiven. Uh, uh, when, you, when you start doing this, it's the question of what the optimal glide path is. And, you know, one of the things that you say when you have to do it gradually, there's not a unique gradual solution. That could be one year, two years, three years, and five years. And this This is the trade-off the slower you do it the nicer the adjustments can be the longer you take then in effect what happens is the greater the political risk so let me give you the counter example from New Zealand where you're not talking about the money supply but you're talking about tariff barriers and subsidies uh, the greatest achievement to that country was by Sir Roger Douglas in 1986, and I'll tell you how he described it afterwards. He said, first I got rid of one of these darn subsidies and tariffs, and everybody said, I'll never do it again. I said, to hell with them, I'm doing it again. He said, I'm just going after one after another because the moment I slow down, he said, the rats will seep jumping from the ship and will try to organize a counter-revolution. Now, this is the difference. When you remove barriers to exports and imports, you don't have the 50% unemployment rate. These are unambiguously positive situations. So you can take the prescription that you would apply to the macroeconomic stuff and apply it to the microeconomic stuff, trade policy essentially, where in fact the opposite conclusion actually probably is more
0: accurate. So, so to so some extent, our and you dis- agree with that, right? Yep. So to some extent, our disagreements are micro and macro. Uh, but I, we've only got about f- five minutes left. And I, I want to s- ask one question of each of you. I going to try to give a one-and-a-half to two-minute answer. I don't think we'll have time to debate it, but it's a, it's a key question we haven't touched on, which is inequality and redistribution. A lot of people would say, they used to say before we had a, the Great Recession, well, capitalism's great, but it, it leads to inequality. And I want to ask each of you, what is government's role in your mind in Changing the natural results of inequality that, that will result from capitalism:
5: well I'm going first, and let me just state what the dilemma is. If, in fact, you have greater inequality from an initial position where both parties to a voluntary exchange, for example, are made off, are made better off, or large numbers of people, all of whom improves, do you have a problem if you go from a society that starts with everybody at 10 and moves to one where one person is 11, 12, 13, 14 and all the way up? To an economist, or at least a classical economist, that's a Pareto improvement, but there are always troubles about the distributional side if it gets too extreme. And here is the way in which I start to think about it. First, worry about growth so that you can move the base up, at which point the need for support at the bottom diminishes because it's not a question of life or death anymore. It's a question of a black and white TV is against a color TV. Uh, Then what you do is, to the extent that there are these things, you try to encourage the private sector, what Michael called civil society or Earlier on to move that way, and in fact, the great achievements of the 19th century under laissez-faire were the creation of these voluntary institutions, Stanford's, Johns Hopkins, the Sloan-Kettering Institute, and so forth, and then after you've done all that, you try to figure out how you put a modest government program in place, and the danger with the third is the first two are positive some, the third one is negative some, and the question to ask is can you confine it to modest levels? Unfortunately, given the expansion that we've seen in Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, unemployment benefits, and so forth, I'm coming around reluctantly to the belief that you can't seem to be able to control this stuff. And so, politically, I I move to cut it back a little bit. Intellectually, I think it's probably a mistake if you start from an original position where, in fact, you don't have these programs already embedded.
0: Mike, and then I'll give Robert the last word.
3: I worry that... Our conception of social justice and the idea that inequality is somehow a problem raise the sin of envy to the status of a social virtue. So if it makes me mad that you have more than I do, I presumably would need some basis for saying you don't deserve it or that I do. And so the difficulty that we have is in not evaluating inequality and differences in income as a prima facie basis for state action, for having men with guns come to your house and take things that you have earned and given them to someone else. On the other hand, it is certainly true that we act in a larger society than ourselves. Let me me pose this problem. Suppose you and I engage in an exchange, we both are happier as a result. And I'm really good at this and I can produce something where I can engage in this exchange with many people. The worrisome thing would be, it would seem that, people who get rich in that setting, where they engage in many transactions that make a lot of people better off, are going to be those who acquire more income. The problem is that when you look at the great wealth that's created by our financial sector, which is essentially a rent-seeking circus, when you look at the disparity in incomes between people at places like Archer Daniels Midland that have managed to secure for themselves enormous monopolistic benefits at the expense of all the rest of us, I think that weakens my argument quite a bit. And so I'm concerned that once we take the step towards saying it's not clear whether people deserve their incomes, and that's actually something that I concede, at what point do we say, and therefore the state is justified in redistributing it? I'm confused.
4: Robert. Well, um I don't think we're going to sort of disagree too much about this. I mean, one of the, one of the arguments against redistribution is this, that if, if, if there's perfectly uh, just allocation, um, if the market uh, succeeds in doing that, that is, if it succeeds in ensuring that every factor of production um, uh, receives what it's worth, that is, um, receives its marginal product, what case then is there for, for the state to alter that? I mean, they, every, every fact of production, every person gets what his, what his contribution to the economy is. So on what grounds should you seek to alter the allocation that the market um, generates? We're talking of fairly perfect markets, but let's assume all that for the, t- for the time being. I think on two grounds. One, that the people's, some people's marginal product may not be enough to keep them alive. Um, uh, and therefore, you've got to, um, unless you're prepared um, for some of your population to die of starvation or other, uh, uh, other uh, causes, you've got to support them. Now, any support um, uh, up to some basic standard of livelihood involves some redistribution. It must do. Uh, Just arithmetically. It may not be your aim, but it must do. It's it's sort of, if you like, compulsory charity, um, which is done by the state because private charity doesn't do the job uh, enough of it. Secondly, you can, through redistribution, increase people's marginal products just by making them more effective. Participants in the Labour Party and the whole of the uh, economics of. You meant Labour Party or labour market? He so. meant labor force, I, I meant yeah. labour force. I meant <laughs> labour, labour force, labour <laughs> oh, Sorry, I don't actually support it's the Labour right, <laughs> I'm a cross peculiar institution in the um, in British Upper House. You can improve people's marginal products because they depend, they depend on their educability, depends on their home circumstances, on their social conditions, lots of things. And if you improve that, you actually give them a higher marginal product and make them more effective competitors. And that, I think, is an, is an argument for distribution. The whole of the economics of human capital and human capital development is based on this. And there, you're not aiming, your aim isn't to redistribute, but your method
0: has to involve some redistribution. I want to thank Butler University, Liberty Fund, you who came to help us create this this afternoon. And I'd like you and all of us to thank our panelists, Michael Munger, Robert Skidelsky and Richard Epstein. Thank you very much.